You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Is this on? Hello, working? Hello? Hi. Hey, can you hear me? Hello? Hi. Um, hey, uh, hey, this is David Heath, Farmer Dave. And to my virtual left is uh, nobody. That's because our dear friend and compatriot, D.B. Spitzer, is a little under the weather. So uh, I'm here at the control center trying to... Uh, hello? Is this working? Is that, that light? That light's... Well, so I'm hoping that this gets out. This is going to be kind of like the old uh, seat of your pants days back in the old... Uh, uh, if you guys remember uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigan, my first podcast, where we're just... Um, hopefully this works. And so I'm trying to con- do control here on the equipment so, you know, the sound might be... Uh, well, we do our best, and we miss DB, and hope he is getting better. Uh, so, um, I'm here, and there, there's this red button, and I, I never noticed it, because I usually, you know, I usually broadcast from the farm, uh, but it's got this tape message, it says, uh, self-destruct. And underneath that red button, it's got a little message that says, do not touch. You know, I got to touch it. I know, I, so, I, I'm trying hard not to touch it. So, um, hey, um, it's just you and me, you being all of our wonderful listeners. And so I'm going to go ahead and, um, you know, let's, uh, let's do a throwback from Dave's Undergoat. Uh, underground goat shenanigans. Hey, I'm going to give you guys the goat report. Ready? This is Farmer Dave, and the goat report is goats are angry. Ah, never gets old. Hey, uh, so um, got a lot going on today, and uh, what I thought maybe, you know, uh, we got an interview by uh, um, a very uh, interesting person who goes by many names, but... Uh, Uncommon Pope is one of them, and uh, I think it'll be a lot clearer when you hear Faye interview, and, and they use several different pronouns, but I think once you once you hear the interview, it'll make a lot of sense. I think you'll really enjoy it. But I was thinking, you know, I used to, before I got this gig, you know, I was thinking, I would go to these cons, and I would listen to these podcasts, and i go, gee, it's all kind of like almost I'm on it, I'm a member. And, you know, I would always think, well, you know, if the conversation was going this way, I would say this. So I thought we got kind of maybe, a, I don't know, a thought experiment, a role play, I don't know. So here's what I'm going to do. Let's pretend I'm interviewing you. Yes, you, our audience, is on the show. So I'm going to say something. I'm going to give it space. You know, you can think of an answer. And hopefully maybe it'll match. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Uh, Again, hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, This is Farmer Dave, and you are on the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. And I am really, really excited about our new guest. In fact, you know what? I'm going to go let our guests introduce themselves. Uh, Tell our audience a little bit about you. Wow, that's just fascinating. And uh, hey, uh, what what new products uh, projects are you working on? Talk 
can't wait for that to come out. Hey, this is kind of our signature question. I normally I save it at the end, but I, I want to ask you a question maybe, you know, at the beginning I sort of throw this out. If you could be part of any creative project, any any medium, don't have to worry about copyrights or money, what is your dream project? Oh, that would be amazing. I would I would just love to see that. Hey, got kind of an important question for you. Why? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that. You know I loved her, right? She was nothing to you, but she was my everything. She was just, she was just an innocent college girl, and you, you blinded her with your lies. I hope you don't sleep at night. I hope that all her tears just burn into your soul and that you realize how evil a person you are. Hey, uh, that, that's about all the time we got today. Uh, you know, great, great show. Hey, um, hope to have you on again, maybe uh, closer to Christmas. And uh, hey, we can talk about that felony you think you got away with that no one knows about that has no statute of limitation. Yeah, that's basically what it's like being on our show. So, um, yeah, uh, basically, yeah, I get the run of the place today. And so before we uh, maybe accidentally burn down the studio because I'm pushing buttons that I should not, uh, we're going to do sort of a... It's not Dave's corner of the show today because everything is Dave's corner. But we're going to talk about sort of out of order. Uh, but I thought, you know, we needed to kind of maybe live up to our title and something Cthulhu Mythos related. Uh, so um, we're going to talk about you and me. And while you think about that thing that you did in college, you and I, we're going to talk about Star Spawn of Cthulhu. Now, I'm not quite sure where I first came across the Star Spawn. Probably the Chaosium Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. And so, you know, and that's going to be a little important because we're going to talk about that and, and Sandy Peterson's influence as we discuss this. But um, in essence, when I first discovered the Star Spawn, they were for the role-playing game and they were basically lesser boss Cthulhu's and you know you can't you can't kill Cthulhu without derailing the entire storyline plot for the game but here are these like little Cthulhu's that are not as powerful that maybe you could defeat or destroy and it not affect the greater the big Cthulhu now this kind of brings us up that, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but this kind of makes Cthulhu one of many. The biggest, baddest one of many, but it becomes less of a god, more of a race. In fact, Brian Lumley is going to go with this, and he's going to basically say what these creatures, these star spawn, look like, uh, and he's going to call them Cthulhu, you know, of the race of Cthulhu. Thulu. In uh, Lumley's uh, Titus Crow novels, uh, they, the race is 
uh, known as Zothians. And though the term first appears in Mountains of Madness, uh, Lovecraft spends like five paragraphs talking about them and just really doesn't go into a lot of details. So we don't really know what they look like. So Lumley, Lumley and uh, August Derelith and then Sandy Peterson basically take the idea that these are like little smaller Cthulhu's in the same way that Father Dagon and Mother Hydra are not deities. They're the biggest, most powerful representatives of their race. So in Dagon, which was one of Lovecraft's earlier books, it's implied that Dagon is a deity. There's even a cult in when we see the esoteric, esoteric order of Dagon. But he's not, he's later explained, he's subservient to Cthulhu. And that he is not a deity, but in the same way that a human being might be a deity-like to an ant, he is that much more powerful than the humans. But we can relate, we can understand who Dagon is more than, say, a supernatural entity. And that the same way Cthulhu is. Cthulhu is an entity made up of matter, even though it's different than the matter in our planet. And a little bit more, uh, in Mountains of Madness, it says specifically that the star spawn of Cthulhu, and hence Cthulhu, is made up of this strange vibrating matter that is different from terrestrial matter uh, that the Migo are. That they're not deities in the way that human minds see divine. Rather, they are an advanced alien species. And Sandy Peterson, in a uh, YouTube response to one of his posts talking about uh, the different elder gods and outer gods, he specifically, when referring to the star spawn, says that God is a title or a rank, not this Judeo-Christian or, or modern human thinking of the word God. Their concept of what these creatures are are so beyond us that God is just the closest word that we can give them. And that there are upper and lower levels that even the lowest level of this, and this is me adding, not Peterson's adding, I'm sorry. Uh, even the lowest level of these creatures is beyond the highest grade of, of a human being, but that they are alien. Now, probably my next contact with this, the uh, star spawn is August Derelis, uh the lair of the star, uh, star spawn. And you know, I really, really enjoyed that story in my first reading. Uh, you know, for a Delerthian heresy story, it's not bad. It was written in Lovecraft's lifetime. So it's not, it's a, it's a good, solid story. I have to admit, 
it didn't quite hold up to second, third readings, but it was good enough that I wanted to read it a second and a And the two uh, star spawn that are sort of trapped on Earth under the jungle are definitely Cthulhu-inspired. So this is where I get a little confused. Mountain of Madness, which where they sort of lay out the uh, call Cthulhu, or lay out the star spawn of Cthulhu, was published in 1936. Stars, the Lair of the Star Spawn, was published in 1932. And then my sort of primitive farmer brain was, oh my gosh, was this actually a Dolithian idea that he inspired and encouraged Lovecraft? And, you know, have we missed the point from the beginning? The answer is no. So even though Mountains of Madness, which is really where Lovecraft uses, as far as I know, the first, you know, the Star Spawn term, first time, is published in 1936, I believe. It's written in 1931. And this was during a time of high correspondence, and I've not read a lot of the Derelith Lovecraft letters, but I, I have no doubt that Derelith got this idea about using the term star spawn. And maybe he did. Maybe he simultaneously came up with it both independently. But Lovecraft uses it at least in his inner circle and in his writings before Derelith's story is published. And Derelith had a pretty quick turnabout. So, you know, Lovecraft sat on this story for like six years before it was published. I, I doubt that Derelith did the same. Call of Cthulhu was, of course, written in 1926, published in 1928. So the term, the concept, had been definitely out there. Um, so when Derleth, you know, three years later, inspires his star spawn, they are basically designed on Cthulhu. And they're pretty much meant to be proxies or children of Cthulhu. Now, I think it's really quick that, or really important that we mention it quickly. Lovecraft doesn't describe what these the star spawn looks like, or what their true relationship to Cthulhu is. So there's a couple of theories, and the the one that most people have, and the one I probably guess tend towards, is that they are the race. And that the Cthulhu is their leader, and he is the high priest of Yog Sagoth, so he has mastered space and mechanics, so he is basically all but a god to them and to human beings. Not necessarily. Another theory is, you know, that they are his literal spawn. Another is that they're his creation. That he, as this brilliant intellect, scientists made them and that they are this sort of servitor race that he made just like the Shagas were made. Um, and Lovecraft doesn't say, different authors will have their opinions, but it's not definitive. So might as well go to the true source of the um, 
spawn of Cthulhu. And even though it may be that there are a plurality of Cthulhu's kind of thrown out and called Cthulhu, we really see this when we're reading Mountains of Madness. And here's the thing where up till I read S.T. Joshi's uh, Rise and Fall and R Rise Again of the Cthulhu Mythos, I just, I believe this Darlethian heresy, even though I'd read the story, there's just such quick throwaway paragraphs. I believed that Cthulhu and his kind were trapped on the earth by the elder gods. And Jossie points out, and I went through and specifically read it, and you can get a PDF and go ahead and, you know, get out online and control F the word elder. It is not the elder gods in that story that traps Cthulhu and the star spawn on Earth. It is the elder things. And so this buys more into this concept that Cthulhu and his ilk are a race. Because this is no longer this divine war in heaven, elder gods versus the great old ones or the outer gods. No, this is more of a highly advanced war, science fiction war of alien races that we're going to see in everything from, you know, uh, Edison versus the Martians to Star Wars. And this also sort of gives me more imply that the Cthulhu spawn, and this is interpretation because Lovecraft, either by happenstance or by act of genius, left these things up to people's imaginations. And it's possible he just thought it's not what the story is about. But he doesn't really describe them. He does about how they're trapped on the earth by the elder thing, that they are the star spawn of the Cthulhu, they are the follower of the Cthulhu, but he doesn't say what they look like. He doesn't go into a lot into details about what their civilization is. Just that they, as a race, had a war against the race of the Elder Things. They basically got their butts kicked and were forced underground or under the water. And it's even sort of implied that maybe some of that is natural, but that they were a material race. And it says in the story too, that there is a different type of material than is used on the terrestrial earth, that it is closer to the matter and the atoms of the Migo. And this would allow them to fly in space, make it difficult to photograph. It's a different type of matter, but it is a matter nonetheless, so it could sustain itself on Earth. Um, and so, even though we've got a lot of stuff coming in from other writers, we really don't, much later, we don't have a lot of stuff about the star spawn of the Cthulhu directly from Lovecraft. And, and that's kind of it, wrap up of who the star spawn were. Um, so, um, uh, my name is Farmer Dave, and I said we've got a great, uh, so even though he's, even though he's not feeling well, DB is going to, um, basically edit this when, as soon as he's up to it, because, to me, cut and paste 
is still something you do with scissors and glue. But, eh, eh it is what it is. Uh, but we do have a great interview with the Uncommon Pope, or Uncommon Pope, excuse me. And uh, after that, uh, maybe I'll talk about a little bit about whatever the heck I want, because I will. Uh, first, um, I'm going to put that fire out in the garbage bin. Uh, while I'm doing that, uh, you go ahead and listen to our interview. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest that includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com, forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon because remember Innsmouth isn't just a place it's a state of mind. stuff like that so the same part so uh and i part of the part of the charm of this show is that we do record on a, a working farm so there is a possibility you will hear a farm noise if we have the interview in about five months if we have a second interview you'll probably even hear baby goats <gasps> baby goats yeah it's just it's just starting breeding season so we got about five months on that one I, i've had a number of goat herd uh friends Oh, cool. They pop up. Like I don't know if I told you, I used to live in the woods of rural southern Oregon. Um, no. I... Yeah, on some land. Uh, and TB, you can edit this in if you like. Um, on some land that has been in queer hands since hmm. the like the 60s or so, maybe the 70s. Um, owned by individuals. Then it was a sissy Maoist farming collective. And then it's been the Radical Fairies uh, land for like 40 years or so, 45, maybe 50. Um, so I used to live there and there's a strong community of homesteaders and rewilders and people like that. So we would have many members of our community would be 
living the life of a full-on goat herd. Everything from uh, double, my friend Double Snake, who uh, whose fairy name comes from the fact that he only has one finger on each hand, mm. um, who would raise uh, goats and walk them down the streets of Berkeley, California. Oh, okay. Um, all the way to my acquaintance Amara, who sadly passed a year or two back, mm. um, who would like old school march her herd across the mountains of California. That, that's 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 more guts than I have. <laughs> I, 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 I freak out even if they start looking out the other side of the fence because. Okay, well, um, okay, I think I'm I'm ready. So uh, if we got no questions, uh, well, I'm gonna go ahead and start. Perfect. So this is the part of the show where I talk to somebody who is not myself, not a goat, and not DB. And uh, normally I let them introduce themselves, but uh, why don't we go ahead? Why don't you introduce yourself uh, to our audience? Well, I will say that at least two of those three things are a lie. I leave it up to the audience to figure out which. Um, I Hello, everyone. Uh, I have use 18 different names. Uh, among them are included Pope Uncommon the Dainty, uh, Sertor Valerium Tristissima Liber, uh, Skunkheart, uh, Emily Loretta Flummox, and a bunch of others, 18 names interchangeably. It's a it's a queer thing, not a system thing, not a plurality thing. Um, and I am a TTRPG content creator. I uh, write content um, for my blog as well as to, uh, to publish. And I am in uh, streamed actual plays of various tabletop role playing games. And most recently, I am and and most and and. Very joyously, I uh, have, am a professional dungeon master with Start Playing Games. Uh, I am a constant advocate for the value of interactive fiction um, as literature uh, and use three different sets of pronouns. Among them are fey, femme, fear, fierce, femself. Um, never know what to say in an introduction. As I was just saying, I used to live... Uh, in the woods of rural southern Oregon with a bunch of drag queen witches in which feeding a tree a bucket of blood was not a terribly uncommon occurrence. Um, it wasn't every day, but it wasn't terribly uncommon. So I like to say that I, I had to turn my life into a fantasy setting before I could write a fantasy setting for uh, fiction or for role-playing games. Oh, I also write um, short fiction performed slam poetry for a decade, including two stints on national uh, slam teams and edit anthologies with my sweetie, uh, the award-winning Afro-surrealist and horror writer, Sumiko Salson. Okay, excellent. Yeah, now, to be honest, the only thing that seemed unusual to me in that whole thing is, why would anyone live in Southern Oregon when they could live in Northern Oregon? I'm just kidding. Southern Oregon is beautiful. It is gorgeous. Like, um, people would ask me how I was doing when I was when I was on that land, and I was just like, "Do you not see where I live? It is gorgeous." There are four there are four groups of people in rural Southern Oregon. There are the queers who moved there, uh, starting with um, a group of I actually know 
the story of the original queer land project in rural southern Oregon. It was eight uh, couples who were bisexual who wanted to get away from uh, heteronormativity. So they bought some land in, in southern Oregon, moved there only to discover that they were all monosexual and gay. And so they split into a, ma a men's land and a women's land. And that's the like seed from which this whole uh, rural southern Oregon neighborhood grew. Um, it became a bit of a, a spot for people to move to when they wanted to get away from cis heteronormativity. Um, so there's the queers. There's the salt of the earth, small town people, you know, who end up in like freeform TV channel shows, right? Like just the the good basic American types. There's the uh, meth head white supremacists. And there are people who are some combination of the previous things. Those are the four groups of people who live in Oregon. So I moved to rural Southern Oregon because of that first group, because of that deep queer history of moving out to the land in rural Southern Oregon as a way of um, really digging in and discovering who we are. Um, Harry Hay called it maximizing the differences. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, I'm really curious and about your role playing things. In fact, I've kind of different thought too, but let's start off with some of the, what you're working on. What projects are you working on now? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm tongue tied for a second. Um, a lot of my recent projects have been more indie story game sort of focused. So I have one game called uh, that I call True Will Inspired Reality Layer or mm. Twirl which is a, a game, a story game looking at uh, how we use uh, experiences in which are in which we step outside of our our mundane everyday life that are in where we become in some way uh, imaginal um, imaginations of ourselves. Whatever that is, it's, it's a it's designed as an engine rather than for a specific game. Okay. Um, and part of why I'm doing that is to make a a strong point that like if you watch the movie the TV show Pose, going to the drag balls is the equivalent of um, the the doll world in Welcome to Marwin is the equivalent of Terabithia in Bridge to Terabithia is the equivalent of uh, in certain stories you could tell. Uh, sen senility and elders, you know, et cetera. Like all these ways in which you can find these little spots where we step outside of our of the expectations of our lives, and how we need those, even though they pull us out of the necessities of our lives. We need those in order to improve ourselves and 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 become better at handling the mundanities of our life. Um, oh. it's it's also a bit of a teaching grimoire. Um, because I'm also a magician, wizard, witch, etc. Okay. Um, so the character creation is super easy. Everybody starts with one stat and only one stat, and they all have the same rating in that stat. And it is called, uh, I am now and can only ever do my true will, but what the fuck is it? And it is the only thing, only stat in the game that you do not ever rename, no matter what game you're, what story you're telling in the game. Okay. Um, 
I'm probably going into too much detail. I apologize. I'm autistic. No, that's okay. Sometimes I'm autistically specific. No, I I find it interesting. Although I have to admit, and this is a little bit off of kind of maybe the things that I sent you. If I had known, and it's probably good that I didn't, that professional game master would someday be a career, I'm sure I would have majored in it in college. What exactly? And I know see so much now with COVID uh, and so much with the rise of online role-playing and tabletop playing games. Tell me a little bit about uh, being a professional game master. I 100% would have um, majored in... I actually thought, tried to figure out how I could independent study major in world creation and mythopoeia in college. Um could you repeat the question? I'm sorry. So, yeah. <coughs> What's it like being a, a, a professional game master? Or how, how do you do it? Uh, it's, I mean, you run games. It's, it's uh, running games plus chasing down clients is really the way it works. Um, in some, to a certain extent, I'm actually kind of the, the be- wrong person to ask because I had a very unusual sort of process with it. Hmm. Like, uh, 90% of the, or 85% of the games posted and 90% of the games played on that particular website are Dungeons and Dragons. And I have yet to run a Dungeons and Dragons, uh, game through that site. Uh, one in, I think they said about 700, if I remember the math correctly. Um, they gave it with percentages of clients visit your website and hire you as a dm or visit your profile and hire you as a dm by looking at your profile that's mm. happened like two or three times so uh to a certain extent i'm having an unusual experience on the site uh but for the most part i am just constantly trying to find people who want to play games uh, and i ask them what they want to play um and i will create bespoke campaigns uh for them oh that's nice custom Custom, yeah. Uh, a lot of the GMs on the site will just like run their own adventures, or a lot will run published D and D adventures. Yeah. Um, but so far, I've had the most success with creating custom games uh, for Thirsty Sword Lesbians, Legend of the Five Rings, Monster Hearts Two, and even Dark Ages Fey, which was a surprising one that people asked me, but it's turned into my oh. highest concept campaign oh, wow. i've ever run wow uh you'll have to forgive uh, our 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 herding dogs are really excited about the possibility of being a professional game dog i guess because they started barking um so one of the things i've really seen a lot and i'm sort of curious what you feel about why is horror such an appealing subject for role-playing games uh, I, I actually talk about this a lot. I uh, joined the Horror Writers Association with an ulterior motive because I went to StokerCon with my sweetie and noticed they weren't giving out awards for interactive fiction. Oh, okay. So my like, secret supervillainous plot is to create a Stoker category for interactive fiction. Oh, Maybe okay. a Hugo category, which already has some things that count. Uh, the Nebula Awards just gave the first ever Nebula Award to a role-playing game. Mm. Sword Lesbians. Um, the, the power of uh, interactive fiction in general, and especially in role-playing games for me with horror 
is that it collapses the storyteller audience dichotomy. So it's not um, Sage on a stage. Here's a movie. Here's a book. Like you are now I, this this you are now passively engaging in this thing, which is treating you as passive because it's just downloading this narrative into your brain. Um, and then you have to to create create agency within that process. In horror or in interactive fiction, excuse me, um, everyone is telling the story to each other, and everyone has equal agency and role in that story. So uh, there's no there's no way to push away responsibility for where the story goes. It is extremely immediate in that communality. Um, also, the various mechanics of RPGs set themselves up for uh, difficult texts. And for me, the the best horror uh, is when it when they get difficult, when they're not easy to understand. Like I love me some easy to understand vampire stories, right? I love me some Anita Blake Vampire Hunter. That is my one of my favorite ongoing book series. And it's it's very straightforward. Not I'm not putting it down. There is a lot there, and you can actually pull out a lot from that series. But it is also just a very straightforward story. There are vampires. They're trying to do this thing. She's trying to stop them, etc. The, the, there's an argument that it's good, healthy fun to just sort of sit down, yeah, and immerse yourself in a world that's easy to understand. That's easy. To, it, it, it is useful. It is helpful. It is fun. Uh, it is healthy. I'm, I'm not, not trying. It's not to always down. what you want. It's not always what you want. And with role-playing games, they give you stuff you have to grapple with, right? So, like, the most common task resolution system in a role-playing game would be rolling dice, right? Mm, Yeah. And this leads to something that I've heard called bathos. Not pathos with a P, but bathos with a B, Um, which is the sort of the wah-wah-wah effect, right? Like, it's the refusal to obey narrative expectations you know you're the big great hero chosen by the gods wielding the ancient artifact and you're facing off against the dragon that has enslaved your world and you roll a one slip on a pebble fall down the mountain and an avalanche covers you and you die for no reason it just happens right this is it gets much more complicated than this but this is my like very bare minimum way of of getting at what i'm trying to say which is that it mimics life in that there isn't an easy narrative structure that you can fit that into, that you can use to understand that. You have to grapple with, in telling the story thereafter, with um, the messiness of life, the difficulties of life. And when you combine that with uh, horror, which as a genre, one of my first attempts to learn about it as a genre way back in high school posited that the highest level of horror would be religious awe, right? Okay. Um, that, but, but when you get out of yourself and you're do, dealing with that, that bathos, you end up having these incredibly transformative sort of experiences and thought processes, processes and realities, and you're telling them in a group of friends for whom that experience now has incredible amounts of meaning. You've created your own mythology around these difficult, difficult uh, texts of the events of the game that can help you process things 
in, in a way I've experienced nowhere else and can horrify you in a way I've experienced in few places. I, I agree. I also think it, like I said, and it's also very intense. I, maybe the same way we would wa- watching a live screen of a roller coaster will never be the same as being on a real roller coaster. That's a good metaphor for like what I was talking about with the active engagement in telling the story. That's a good, good metaphor. So you're also uh, very familiar and have a a love for folklore. Uh, Have you uh, used uh, folklore in some of your games? Uh, It inevitably shows up um, more in the realm of mythology in a lot of ways. Uh, I have a current um, or uh, constant uh, I'm constantly endeavoring to bring the uh, traditions and the deities that I work with and I worship and I work for into my, like, especially like high fantasy settings. Mm. So I will constantly be pulling on and and not the ones that people generally expect, right? Like I worship several of the Teoi, right? Several of the Greek gods. I could pull from that and I do, but never the popular stories, never, um, uh, Zeus killing Uranus, um, you know, and and cutting open his belly and freeing his siblings and cutting off his penis and it lands in the ocean and that's how you get Aphrodite, Aphrodite. Never that story. Not the Trojan War. Not the Trojan War, right? It's it's kind of played out. I don't really vibe with those specific divinities and ancestors and heroes. I tell the stories of like Antinous, who's one of the divinities I worship, right? The beautiful Bithynian boy, my friend on the other side. He was the boyfriend of the Roman emperor, Hadrian, uh, who drowned in the Nile. And because he drowned in the Nile, he became a god. So I'll pull on his story and I'll bring that in. Or I'll pull from the Orphic stories of the Titanes and Daimonis of dream and death and nightmares and confusion and insanity, I'll pull that stuff in, um, which is one of the reasons I originally fell in love with Sumiko, uh, my sweetie, because uh, Z writes a, a paranormal romance series that features those particular gods very heavily. Hmm. Uh, or I will pull in, go even a little bit further afield, and I will pull in Sumerian mythology because I, okay. I uh, worship Ninshubur. Um, very very deeply so i'll pull in that stuff or i'll um i have a concurrent desire or a constant desire to uh really capture what i find powerful in um Nawa religion aztec religion okay um in my D settings um mm. because i've learned so much from engaging with the tateo and with um uh, and the various practices and understandings of of that religion that uh, I, I want to bring that into my fantasy. And even broader, there's the folklore of, uh, I was talking about living on, on the queer land in rural Southern Oregon. That community has its own folklore, right? Okay. There are stories I hear about my ancestors, my transcestors. Um, there are ways that I learned that ancestry doesn't follow DNA. Mm. Right? And whatnot, and I bring try to bring all of that story in, and all of that that gender play and that history that gets forgotten, even AIDS folklore. I can bring into a, a role playing game in various and sundry ways. 
um, the folklore that develops around uh, separatist efforts, like I was saying, moving into rural southern Oregon, uh, that 100% is one of the streams that feeds my uh, shoujo noir setting of the free city of Bern, where they revoked the citizenship of all the empowered genders and tried to set up their own um, anarcho-communal free city that mm. is laboring under and has had to turn to, to crime under heavy economic sanctions from the nation they seceded from, creating that noir setting. 100% there's a stream feeding that that comes from my experience with separatist queer spaces. Um, sorry, I, I went off on a tear. No, 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 that's fine. Um, and sort of as we head towards, um, uh, you know, towards towards the ending, though, um, I do have a, a, a last question for you. And this is our sort of our traditional segment, signature question. If you could be in charge of any creative project, project, any style, any genre, don't have to worry about copyrights, trademarks, or money. What is your basically your dream project? God, what is my dream project? Um, it would definitely be a, a sort of multimedia uh, effort. Wait, wait people call IPs. I don't believe in intellectual property. I okay. barely believe in personal property. And I believe that intellectual property is the worst of the uh, property types and is generally okay. lessening uh, the entire human species. Um, uh, unpopular hot take from an artist type. Um, but, uh, but like, I would want an immersive, like, community that would be set in whatever world I was working on, mm. as well as role-playing games for people to tell their own stories, as well as publishing house uh, for people to publish, the, you know, narrative stories and movies and poetry and whatnot that they set in it. Um, it would... Huh. Yeah, I, I, know, I know that's kind of a... People aren't used to going on shows and being asked that question. Yeah, no, it's it's. I, I thought I had better, more answer in my head. Um, but yeah, there's a way in which whatever it was would become almost more. I hate the marketing way this sounds, but almost more lifestyle than, okay. than property, sure. um, than, than thing that you work on, and it would. It would definitely be it would definitely be a spell. Like I once cast a spell to increase my level of self-sufficiency and did so mm. by uh, wearing my tableware on my belt. And I would only ever eat out of the tableware I had on me, which means that it meant that if I wanted to eat, I had to make sure I had that tableware on me. Okay. Um, and that was I did that for a month, and it was that was my spell. So it would be. Along those lines, and it would probably pull thematically and in, in intent on some of the stuff that Grant Morrison was trying to do in their work, The Invisibles. Okay, it, it and an excellent series. Definitely an excellent series that resulted in, magically caused him to get, or them, excuse me, magically caused them to act, literally get hit by a car. Um, some of the stories around that are intense. And it would involve the val 
the empowerment uh, in in a a magical and fundamental spiritual sense of identity while loosening the boundaries between the identities and uh, engage in raising engage in much like another Grant Morrison's works, the filth, uh, in 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 helping us connect with um that the power of that which we find disgusting not only the power of being disgusting but the power of the cycle of of death and decay and shit um i mean what else feeds our our bread and our roses our flowers and our food if not our shit in every sense of the word and so it would be a lifestyle and a story and poetry and you know an immersive theater city Oh, okay. That would be um, heavily uh, agricultural. Um, it would it would probably be the idea of creating, it, like the 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 story would be about creating a fantasy world here and now. All right. Um, and pulling that into reality. Um. So it would definitely involve also a lot of context crossing and a lot of of understanding an alien thing and bringing it into our reality. And that was a very rambling answer that took way too long. Well, I love I love the different answers that we get for this. (laughs) So I, I, I. Yeah, I I apologize, perhaps that 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 isn't a clear response, uh, a particular setting. You know, I could say I'd love to work on a Dune thing, but there are a ton of Dune things out there, you know, Um, that's boring. Uh, And the time I feel the whenever I feel the most juice on any project, it's when I feel like I'm improving the world I'm in or creating a new world. Okay. Um, So, yeah, so that's that's what I would work on, I think. Excellent. Now, um, you got a whole lot of projects going on. If I have or any of our uh, listeners are interested in uh, finding your projects, what are some that they can find? Uh, you can find me on all of my social medias. If you go to Linktree, that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Queer Mythopoeia, Q-U-E-E-R-M-Y-T-H. O-P-O-E-I-A, um, because I'm a Tolkien fan who likes words that Tolkien made up. Okay. Um, and you can find all my social medias there. You can find uh, Curriculum Vitae with everything that I've done religiously, as well as with role-playing games, including links where I can provide them. Um, so that'll send you to the YouTube pages of some of the streams I've been on, so you can see me playing a ver- wide variety of games. Um as well as to my blog, where I publish a lot of the the content that I write, and I will be updating the blog, uh, the link tree, as I publish more and more stuff. Um, Excellent. So yeah. Excellent. And we'll we'll of course have some links here on this show, and uh, I have just really enjoyed talking to you, and hopefully we can have you on again soon. I would love that. That would be amazing. Excellent. Well, maybe maybe closer to kidding season. Yay, baby goats! Hey, everyone. It's me, TV. Just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. 
just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shower curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. You're listening to KZOM, only on public radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer Informative, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. So, so it's the green light, or the yellow light? I think it's the green light so it's on. Hello? Hello? Oh, hey, hey, okay, I'm back. Hey, good news, I had communicated with DB. Uh, we mainly talked about whether or not the fire extinguishers at the studio have to be held upside down to use or not. Pro tip, they don't. And, uh, you know, he seems to be doing a little bit better. Uh, he wants me to send all this over to edit it. So all the good stuff is him. All the bad talky talk stuff is me. Uh, but hopefully you'll feel better soon enough to, to maybe do the show next week. And um, until then... Now is the hour of my wrath. Um, last part of the show, you know, we're going to maybe talk about whatever the heck I want to. And what are you going to do to stop me? Oh, turn the podcast off. Yeah, that pretty much would do it. But hey, um, for those of you that are still listening, uh, I want to catch up a little bit with you. Hey, my name is David Heath, and I am Farmer Dave. And um, so I uh, just want to maybe talk a couple minutes here. Uh, you know, let you get out of class a little early. Y'all love that, don't you? And uh, But uh, just what's going on in uh, what we call my corner of the universe. So uh, I'm on the farm, you know, for those of you know, I, I live on a pretty large goat farm. And here in rural Oregon, it gets dark pretty early even with uh, you know changing the daylight time um, and there is this great horned owl I have not seen it but I know it's a great horned owl because um, great horns are the ones you usually like you hear on like movies and stuff because they do the hoot 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 you know the, the three to six hoots I think uh, average like five or so really quick so I'm, I'm feeding the goats and so I hoot back, you know, I go, hoot, 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 hoot. And then it hoots back to me, hoot, 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 hoot. And well, um, bottom line, we're engaged. Um, I think we're engaged. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, but so um, what else is happening? Um, well, I'm, uh, you know, a couple of TV shows are out there. I thought maybe we'd talk about. Um, I just I haven't had a lot of time to catch up. Uh, and so there's a lot of shows that are on the list, um, but uh, one that I really like is uh, 
by uh, it's on uh, Amazon Prime. It's the Peripheral. And those who know me and who listen to the show know if there's anything that you know fiction that runs close to my heart of uh, the cosmic horror, it's going to be cyberpunk. Uh, you know, I've been a huge fan. You know, I read. Uh, I read uh, Neuromancer probably the first time in 1989. I've read it like seven or eight times since then. It's probably the single book that I've, fiction book at least, that I have read over and over the most. Um, and William Gibson's, you know, he did this. To me, the Sprawl series is a lot like Star Wars. A lot of people, um, in that that wow you know uh what uh neuromancer just really changed everything it's amazing it's the way we look at science fiction the way we look at writing just changed but zero maybe a better story but it's kind of in between and then mona lisa overdrive is kind of the return of the jedi to me it falls short a little bit. It gets a little confusing, kind of end, but it's a good story and it's a good lead up. Uh, then, other than that, really, I'm not a super big Gibson fan outside of, say, like his uh, opinion pieces and his short stories and, and his two amazing comic books. Uh, and I've talked about, and maybe we'll talk about later, is, you know, Aliens 3, which uh, he wrote as a, a movie script that wasn't used, that eventually Dark Horse made a movie or into a comic book, but also um, Archangel. And so I was kind of aware of Peripheral, but I hadn't read it. Um, short thing long or long thing short, whatever. Um, basically, in about 10 years in the future, uh, this young girl who's an amazing gamer is hired to basically go into this virtual reality and it's either the most advanced virtual reality ever or it's actually another dimension and she gets caught up in the politics in the the uh, the universe that that she's in and, and i know a lot about the sequel so i kind of know which one it is and i but i think they make very clear what it is by the second episode and so, spoiler alerts, even though I haven't read the book, and I, and I, I want to, but it, it's kind of, I just have so many books i got to read. Um, he did Archangel. Archangel was a comic book that came out about the same time, and it's the same thing. It's another, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, another dimension in the future is going back to alter a history in a dimension that is at the end of World War II. And to, to, after the Germans have surrendered, but the Japanese have not. And their world did something different than our world that led to this huge parallel um, branch which caused the events to nearly destroy their world 30, 40 years down the road. And now they want to go into this other world, which kind of at the end is ours, maybe, uh, and try to alter history 
to follow a path that ours did not take. It's an amazing comic book. It's called Archangel, uh, spelled like the Russian city. Uh, so bottom line, read that. It's just amazing science fiction, time traveling, multi-dimension comic book with, you know, set in, you know, post-war Germany predominantly. Uh, and definitely it, it gets kind of, I think, long, but I think, yeah, I, I think there's always a payoff. So some of the episodes seem to drag a little bit, but they almost have to for the story to catch up with the action in the TV show peripheral. But I'm going to give it a high recommendation there. Uh, Chris uh, McMillan, I know a couple weeks ago, uh, depending, of course, when you listen to this, talked on our show about uh, Werewolf at Night. Again, absolutely I won't say perfect, but it's a great story. Uh, 50 minutes or so, it, 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 it comes in, it doesn't, it uses its economy very well. It uses its origins very well. Uses its actors and actresses very well. Uh, just a great show. Uh, absolutely a, a Halloween show, but it's not just Halloween. I mean, it, if you're into monsters, you can watch it anytime. And, and I'm kind of excited now to see from just the the previews I've seen of the you know the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special. And of course, anybody who has tried to communicate with me at the end since the end of July know how much I love Amazon Prime's Paper Girl, uh, as well as the Brian K. Vaughn. And it's just, every time I think about it, either the movie, the TV show, which I kind of like a little bit better than the comics, and I love the comics, or I think about the comics, I get something out. It's more I understand it. It's just, on the surface, it's this sort of fun, time-traveling adventure, but it's amazing, and it's some of the best female characters ever written. Do yourself a favor and, and and read the comics and watch the 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 series. Now, I mean, it's not much of a spoiler to say. Of course, they ended season one on a cliffhanger. So not only is our time traveling time traveling to titular paper girls say that three times fast uh, future uh, in question. The series, which is just too bad. Uh, Amazon Prime, you know, they should have supported it better. They could have had something that they could have, I think, had a much more successful um, profit from it. But they didn't really push it. And I get it. They've got other things going on. And there's so much going on. And uh, the Brian K. Vaughn. Uh, why the last man standing didn't go as well as everyone had hoped. Uh, so they kind of so it, it's it not going to be picked up next year by Amazon, uh, but they're allowing others and you know they've got to do something because four most amazing young female actresses uh, play the girls, and, and they're supposed to be twelve years old, but they when they filmed they were between fifteen and sixteen. They're not getting any younger. And I mean, that's not, 
that's just a fact. I mean, I'm not shaming your age. I mean, oh no, you're 18, you're over the head. I mean, if they're going to do it with the same cast, and this cast is amazing, they've got to make a decision quick. So I would love to see a second season. And there are so many other streaming services out there that somebody can pick it up. Somebody should pick it up. Um, even if they just did one more season, because the comic books only have a 30-issue run. Uh, and that's part of the brilliant... I mean, this was definitely a planned comic book, This the arc. So the first... And they're broken down into graphic novels this way. Five-issue graphic novels, six you know graphic novels, six uh, trade paperbacks. The first one is the introduction of the girls. The second five, and there's other stories, you know, subplots and stuff. It's mainly Aaron's story. And then we follow um, KJ's story. Uh, as thrown back in time, KJ basically in this five-issue five arc, even though she's 12 years old, she becomes a woman. And again, not to spoil it, but she has her period, she discovers what her sexuality is, who she will be in the future, and she makes this sacrifice where she, I, I don't want to spoil it, but she's pushed to the limit where to save her friends, and where she realizes she is the protector. Uh, and then the next five episodes or issues is Tiff's story. And Tiffany comes to it's a, the Tiffany story is a lot different, but the same in spirit as it is in the TV show. And where older Tiffany is in this place that life sort of presented for her, but is not where she wants to be. And then the final five, or the next five, is, is Mac's story. As Mac deals with the fact that she finds that time traveling, again, it's not too much spoiling, because it comes rather early in the story, uh, and it happens in the TV series too, is that she discovers that she dies young. Uh, and it's, what does she do? What is she willing to do? What are those who love her and care about her willing to do and take a risk to try to save her, even though they know in one reality, uh, they don't, that she dies when she's 16. The other five, the last five, is sort of the girls coming back they're bonding after this incredible adventure and the conclusion of the time war that they got caught up in and what happened to them when they get back. And so uh, it's definitely worth reading. It's definitely a series worth saving. So uh, what I'm reading, like I said, I'm reading a lot of books just partway through a chapter and then... But um, I'm going to make a recommendation. Again, I, I said I love cyberpunk. And I love humor. So um, I'm going to throw out... Basically, it's a satire but a loving tribute to cyberpunk. And that is uh, David Wong's Future Violence and Fancy Suits. 
It's the first of the Zoe Ash novels. Note to self, do not have goat named Zoe Ash. Um, but that um, it is. It, it sort of pokes fun of cyberpunk. But it does so loving, lovingly. Uh, and as far as I know this too, I think the third book's coming out. I cannot say the name of the second book. But go ahead, just if you're not at work, go ahead and Google second Zoe Ash book by David Wong. David Wong, of course, is a pseudonym from uh, the guy who did Crack.com, uh, chief editor. But he is most famous for writing John Dies at the End. And it's definitely, even though this is a third-person, omnipotent narrator story, I would definitely say that narrator is very influenced by the fictional version of David Wong. And it's almost like David Wong from John Dies at the End is telling you this story. Uh, and so it's just cyberpunk enough that we recognize what's going on, but we also acknowledge, hey, this is the future. And, and in a way, I think, and, and I love Gibson's work, I love Ridley Scott's, um, you know, Blade Runner, uh, 2022, hey, everybody, this is the year that Soylent Green takes place. You know, Make Room, Make Room was the, the uh, story it was based on. But and he's going to probably be as wrong as anyone else writing now. But I think we've got a better idea. I mean, there's there's pay phones and fax machines and, you know, Neuromancer. I think that this is actually a great time to do cyberpunk fiction because we've got a better idea of how the world deals with technology. And in Gibson's words, you know, the street has its own uses for things. We get an idea how that's happening with cell phones and personal computers. And I'm not saying it's all bad, but it, it, it's not necessarily the way that writers in the 80s and the 70s saw it. And it's not even the way writers two or three years ago might have saw it. But I think this is a good time for cyberpunk, or at least post-cyberpunk, and uh, I think a lot of writers, there's a lot of writers trying it, but I think a lot of the big professional names, um, like I said, Gibson's gone off. It definitely, Peripheral is a cyberpunk-ish story, but it goes off in a different direction than, say, Neuromancer did. Much the same way that The Different Engine, which was sort of his first big novel after the Spall series, went um so I, th I think this is a good time for cyberpunk and if you're willing to take your cyberpunk with a little bit of john cheese that's a john died at the end joke if you don't get it uh i would highly recommend uh oh uh futuristic violence and fancy suits by david wong okay um with that said you know um uh, let's uh in the class a little early. Guys, go out and have fun. Uh, kiss your loved ones. Play on the grass. Write poetry. Whatever. Take a nap. Uh, just be good to yourself. And that sounds kind of folksy yet intellectual and caring, doesn't it? 
Um, okay, I'm going to see if I can scrub uh, trash bin fire stains off the roof. And uh, we're hoping and uh, that DB will be back here to my virtual left next week. And that he and his are doing better. And uh, I hope you and are too. And I'm really sorry about that stuff about me saying that I hope you didn't sleep at night because of what you did. But, you know, I, it's, uh, it's okay. So uh, this is Farmer Dave, and I have been doing well, and I am signing off. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know... Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening.